You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. I'm Andrew Kingsley, alongside Drew Kaiser. I'm Drew Kaiser. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Been wanting to do that for a year. That's good. I'm going to do that next time. We're going (laughs) to But we are today in the Gospel of John, and we're getting really close to the end. Matter of fact, we only have one episode left after this one. We have gotten into what we called in the first episode we did, the Passion of Christ. And this is something we've referred to several times throughout our series here on John. Um, And now we're getting into the Passion. That's going to go from chapters 18, 19, and 20. And then chapter 21 being the postscript, or the PS, as I have learned from this podcast. I probably shouldn't be broadcasting that still. Uh, but we're going to break it up like this. 18 and 19, we're going to cover the crucifixion in this episode. And then in the next episode, we're going to cover the resurrection and Jesus' appearances to his disciples after he is uh, risen from the grave. So today we're going to look specifically at chapters 18 and 19. And these are chapters that every Christian is certainly familiar with. You know, at least all the occurrences are going to happen. Um, But, you know, for me, as I really slowed down to read this for the podcast today and to read some commentaries on this, you know, I guess sometimes you read through this and you don't really have anything new stick out at you or you don't see a new perspective on it. But this time that I've read through it and studied it, I think I've seen a lot of things, noticed a lot of things that I just have not before And maybe there's a lot more, even though we recognize there's a lot going on here, there might be even more than what we might, you know, assume just through reading it one time, just to say we've read through the Bible in however many days, or just to say we've read our New Testament, or just to say we've read John. I was studying with somebody yesterday, and she was asking a question I'd never been asked before. Why did Revelation stop at a certain point? Why didn't God just continue to reveal more and more and more and more about himself? And I said, well, he kind of does, but he does it within the 66 books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. In other words, I wasn't, I, just to be clear, I wasn't saying modern day continuous revelation. I was saying every time you read the Bible, you get something new out of it. Yeah, right. As we grow, our capacity to take this in increases, and we never quite get there, so that I've talked to people in their 70s who've been reading the Bible through every year, and they say, and I know it sounds cliche, but they say, I get something new out of it every time I read it. Yeah. And that's, John is one of the books that just keeps on giving. Yeah. Because of its ambiguity, because of its meditative style. And because um, of how brief it is, too. I mean, I think, he, you know, there's so much packed into chapters 18 and 19. And studying for this, I felt like I was studying and, you know, there's so much information, but it's only two chapters. Yeah, so it's very like, concise. Yeah, in his I feel like I'm studying style. an entire book, right. but it's just two chapters and it's not even 100 verses long, I don't think. Yeah, it's like 82 verses. I feel like, let's, I didn't prepare for this, but I feel like Matthew is the historian. Mm-hmm. Um, or academic. Maybe that's a better one. 
Mark is the the um, the painter. He's very vivid in his depictions. Luke is the uh, technician. Okay. He's very very technical. Yeah. And then John is the poet. The only one that I knew I was going yeah, with I when I started that. down that list was John was the poet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I really, you know, I do think, good. you know, Luke being a medical doctor, he does get very technical with some of his descriptions. Mark is definitely very vivid. Uh, Matthew uh, really makes sure that he gets the scriptures in, so he's kind of academic in his approach. Right. John, po- very poetic in the sense that he says a lot with very few words. He chooses the right word. He doesn't try to choose the hardest word to understand. That's mm-hmm. more Luke's territory. Yeah. He he selects the right word. Well, let's not eat up all our time with our musings on yeah. John. We we both love this book. I mean, right. we just really had a great time, and uh, we hope to um, hope we have a lot of people listening in on these podcasts, and we hope you can feel our love for this book as we're talking about it. Uh, we're in chapter 18, and John sets up the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he went with the disciples across the Kidron Valley into the garden, and he, he doesn't give us as much as the other disciples about his right. suffering in the garden. You remember, John wrote this after the others had been written, and he was trying to give us some new things, and so he just basically mentions the garden only to set the scene for the arrest, which is recorded in verses 3 and following. So we read that Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, that is, to the Garden of Gethsemane with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And I'll stop there, but he also, unlike the others, says very little about Judas's treachery. You know, the others, and I know that you want to talk about this, uh, the others say a lot about the kiss, and the way the Mm -hmm. kiss is framed is, is different. And John just, you know, he assumes we know that story. Right. So he doesn't say a whole lot about it. I do think an interesting question that John raises, and maybe we'll have time to talk about that later, and we definitely don't now, but because of what he said at the beginning of John chapter 13, it makes you wonder, was were Judas's actions, are they a question of fate or choice? Right. Did he really want to do this, or did something possess him? You know, the devil incited him to do it, but what does that mean, and... Mm-hmm. Because of my beliefs about how God works with men, I'm gonna I'm gonna go against the fate idea and believe that Judas had a choice. But yeah. there's a lot involved there that we, like I said during the read section, don't have a whole lot of time to discuss. But getting back to the narrative, Peter decides he's going to do something. He has a sword, and he drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. John tells us. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And, um, you know, it's another scene that's described with other details and other passages of Scripture. But this all leads up to the trials. And there are two phases of the trials of Jesus. 
the Jewish trials, and the Roman trials. And we start with the Jewish trials, first at the house of Annas. Uh, These trials, by the way, took place on Friday before dawn, so that was overnight, which was one of the things that made them a little suspicious. Uh, These things were not not actually done legally. Uh, They were done illegally. Luke 22 has a great uh, passage on that. Jesus says, he, he basically says, Day after day in the temple I have taught, and you didn't arrest me then. But mm-hmm. this is your hour in the power of darkness. Yeah, that's uh, good. I think that's a great way to illustrate mm-hmm. how they're coming to him and what they're accusing him of. So he's brought to Annas in verse 12. And Annas was not officially the high priest at this time. Although he had been high priest from A.D. 6 to 15. Uh, his term of office was cut short by the Romans... Right, but his influence remained until A.D. sixty-five in Jerusalem. And wouldn't he have been considered still to be the high priest by the Jews because right. that was an office for life? Right. Yeah, you had a conflict between Jewish law and Roman law. Mm-hmm. Rome was not interested in anybody being given the opportunity to develop into a figurehead for the Jews, so they put term limits on the office of high priest. But according to the law of Moses. The high priest was such until his death. Right. So Annas was, according to the Jews, they still looked at him as the high priest. Mm -hmm. But his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the official high priest, according to the Romans. They kept him in the family. That was the best that they could do under the circumstances. But you notice who saw over the matter first. It was not Caiaphas, but Annas, which shows you who the Jews considered to be the high priest. Mm-hmm. And uh, they bring him to Annas. He's, the trial takes place in his spacious house and in the courtyard there. And uh, John, again, doesn't tell us a whole lot about what goes on there. Now, mm-hmm. um, there's a little excursus here in verses 15 through 18 where we're taken over to Peter and John. And it's interesting to read this knowing that um, you know John was there. He's writing first person experience here. Mm-hmm. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. You know, John notoriously does not, does not mention himself by name. He is that other disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, so John had some connections. He entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. You remember Peter's vow. Though all others betray you, I will never betray you. I will lay down my life for you. Well, already Jesus' prediction that he would deny him three times before the cock crow is starting to to culminate, come to pass. Back to the high priest. Uh, We're at Caiaphas now, the the official high priest, in verse 19. And uh, the questioning concerned Jesus' disciples and teachings, as if Jesus had been involved in sedition and subterfuge and Jesus responds by saying, 
that he had spoken openly in the world. This is kind of like the Luke statement. Mm-hmm. He had nothing to hide, and he got struck on the cheek for speaking that way to the high priest. Um, actually, I got mixed up there, didn't I? That's still Annas. It's still Annas, right. We're yeah. still in Annas' house. This this gets confusing. So, verse 24, mm-hmm. though, says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas, here in John, he's like, that's... His trial before Caiaphas is just mentioned right there. Right. That's it. You There's have to no go over to... I've got the reference There's, here, Matthew twenty six fifty seven through 68. Yep. Um, that's the second round of Jewish trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is put under oath, and Caiaphas says, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's what brought the charge of blasphemy, and they began striking him and spitting on his face. And so they were done with him at that point, which right. makes it interesting that John focused on Annas. Maybe it's because John knew Annas personally, yeah, and he didn't know Caiaphas as well. But that's right. really what you know they used to justify their bringing him to Pontius Pilate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in verses twenty-five and following, you have Peter's further denials. Uh, he's warming himself, and someone said, You're not also one of the disciples, and he denied it and said, I am not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, so he might have had an axe to grind with Peter, he said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it, and at once the cock crowed. So you have some drama there, as uh, you can see the scene in your mind's eye, and mm-hmm. the Jewish trials end with that. And were brought over to the the headquarters of the governor, from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Uh, now it's early morning, according to John in verse twenty-eight. Um, and Pontius Pilate was what you would call a prefect. Uh, another term was proconsular. Easier for us to understand by calling him a governor right. of the province of Judea. So he was a Roman official. He was not a Jew. He was uh, part of this, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, occupation of Judea on the part of the Romans. Not very popular, had already angered the Jews in a number of ways in the past, and that's key to his behavior here in these Roman trials. Now, you remember that the charge that convicted Jesus during his Jewish trials was what? His claim of deity. Yeah, so they would mm-hmm. say blasphemy, and yeah. that would get you stoned if the Jews were still given the opportunity to do capital punishment. Uh, they were not, though, under Roman occupation. And that charge of blasphemy really didn't get a crucifixion. So they brought different charges that appealed to Roman law when he was brought to Pontius Pilate. Luke summarizes them well in Luke 23, verses 1 through 2. Uh, the first one was, we found this man misleading our nation. And the second was, we found him forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, which is utterly false because you know that story in Matthew 22 when they tried to get him to do that, and he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's unto God God's. Right. And uh, then this last one was the most serious. He is saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Mm-hmm. And that being the most serious one... Pilate focuses on that in his Inquisition. 
So he starts asking Jesus questions, and I'm going to just organize this next part of the scripture with the five questions that Pilate asks. And the first one is recorded in verse 33 of chapter 18. Are you the king of the Jews? Because this was the charge that was made. And if he's king of the Jews, then he's a rival to Caesar, who is also claiming to be king of the Jews and really the rest of the world at that time. So um, Jesus knew he had the wrong idea, and he says in verse 34, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? So Pilate is totally misunderstanding as he was wondering if Jesus was guilty of treason. And Jesus tells him in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so, uh, you know, he asserts this spiritual kingdom, which is not in competition with Rome. It actually transcends Rome, but he didn't get into that in this Mm -hmm. particular case. Second question, Pilate asks in verse 35, what have you done? He's just wanting an act, you know, he hasn't received a charge, Mm -hmm. or he has, but, you know, it doesn't seem to be true, so he's going to ask the accused, what what have you done? What crime have you committed? That was a question for which there was no possible answer since... Hebrews 4.15 and 1 Peter 2.22 and other passages tell us that Jesus never sinned. So, you know, he had no answer for that. Right. And, you know, he remained silent according to that question. And I think Pilate at this point has got to be thinking, I can see Pilate being real frustrated with the Jews and thinking, oh my goodness, what are they doing bringing this guy in here? Because Jesus is going to come in there not dress like a king, certainly. Uh, you'll remember he's been praying uh, to the point of uh, blood in the garden. Um, so he's probably not real clean and uh, nice looking here. And he's and he's saying, uh, are you the king of the... You know, I can kind of see this as, are you the king of the Jews? In the back of his mind thinking, what on earth? He knows it's all a sham. Yeah, yeah, he knows they're just trying to kill this guy and frame him for this. And then he says, you know, I'm my kingdom's out of this world. So Pilate's thinking, this guy is not a threat. He might be crazy, but he's definitely not a threat mm-hmm. to Caesar or to Rome. And I think that's why he's going to come out and say, I find no guilt in him. Right, right there in verse 38. The third question he asks is the most interesting to me. What is truth? Now, we have to work our way up to it. He doesn't say it immediately after asking what Jesus had done. Uh, when he asked what he had done, Jesus said, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So he deflects, and he says, I'm about truth, which makes Pilate ask this question, What is truth? Mm-hmm. He was very cynical about truth for a number of reasons that you might suspect. I mean... Mm-hmm. He had lived his life in a corrupt government. He had seen a lot of uh, political intrigue and had seen enough lies take place that he'd given up on the idea of truth. And so he kind of sneered at that statement that Jesus was making. Now, the next question was, where are you from? That doesn't occur till chapter 19. So again, we've kind of got to work our way up to that fourth question. Uh, Pilate here is caught between a political rock and a hard place. 
Like you said, he knew Jesus was innocent and that he was on trials because, as Matthew said, his enemies were envious of him. That's Matthew twenty-seven eighteen. Yeah. If he convicted Jesus, he'd be sending an innocent man to execution. But if he let him go, that's political suicide. So he learned that Jesus was from Galilee, and John doesn't record this, I don't think, but he sent the prisoner over to Herod Antipas, who happened to be in town for the celebration of the Passover. Uh, But Antipas was over Galilee. That's his jurisdiction. Instead of doing his job and trying Jesus and making a decision on this, he basically tried to get him to do a sign, do a little sideshow act for him, and when Jesus wouldn't comply, he mocked him and then sent him back to Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. So then Pilate has this other idea. You remember the tradition of the Jews every Passover the governor would release a prisoner according to the Jews' demands. And so he presented Jesus, but the crowd chose Barabbas instead, who was a murderer, an insurrectionist, and a robber. And so he felt like he had no choice, and this brings us into chapter 19. So he took Jesus and he flogged him. That's verse 1. And a flogging is a scourging. That's the literal meaning of that word, mm-hmm. which is a horrible process that could in and of itself lead to death. Right. And many of our listeners have heard this before, but if you don't know what that means, John doesn't go into any detail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically you know, a whip that's comprised of several leather thongs at the ends of which are tied bits of sharpened bits of sheep bone and iron balls, mm-hmm. and they beat you on the back with that until your back is just a bloody pulp. And, um, you know, I I can't remember, I I mean, I can't forget V.P. Black's famous description of Jesus' back being a blood-red sea with two white caps, which Mm. were the shoulder blades poking out. I don't know if that's what it looked like, but it must have been a horrible, ugly, bloody picture Mm. that, that was before them. So he has him beat within an inch of his life, and then he brings him again, maybe hoping to draw some sympathy out of the crowd. And he says, verses 4 and following, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And they lead Jesus out wearing a crown of thrones and a purple robe, and Pilate says, Behold the man. But they say, Crucify him, crucify him. So he tries one last time to relieve himself of the burden of Christ's fate, and he says, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And that's when the crowd says, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. And when he heard that, he was even more afraid. So verse 9 of chapter 19 has Pilate unnerved going to Jesus, asking this fourth question, Where are you from? Now, we know from Matthew that his wife had come to him and said that she had suffered much in a dream because of this man. Right. Uh, We know that some of the stories about Jesus may have circulated to him. We know that, you know, he could tell there was something different about him, just as the centurion does later when Jesus is dying on the cross. There's just something Mm -hmm. amazing about this man. Right. So he's probably starting to worry that he's putting somebody very important to death. Mm-hmm. And he's asking, you know, where are you from? It had nothing to do with Nazareth or Galilee. He'd already tried that route. He's probably he's thinking like Olympus. 
at this well, point. Well, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't considered that, but that may very well be the case, knowing his background is in this pantheon of gods, yeah. Greco-Roman gods. But he may have been asking, you know, just in general, are you from heaven or are you from earth? You know, yeah. just who or what are you? And uh, Jesus doesn't answer because he knows this is impure motives. Um, If Jesus was the Son of God, then Pilate didn't want to risk abandoning him, but he wanted to... His motives were self-serving. He wasn't really wanting to become a Christian or anything like that, so Jesus didn't justify the question with an answer. Which leads us to the fifth question in frustration... Verses 10 and 11 have Pilate to say, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. In other words, this is all according to the sovereignty of God. It's all a part of God's plan. You know, John twelve twenty seven. Jesus said, My hour has come. Mm-hmm. Um... And he further says, verse 11, He who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Interesting to think about. The sins of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders of the Sanhedrin were greater than the sin of the man who sent Jesus to the cross. Mm -hmm. So that ended the Roman trials. Pilate, as the other accounts say, calls for a wash basin, washes his hands of the matter, says he's innocent of this man's blood. He knows there's no guilt in him, and he tells them to see to it themselves. And so he delivers him over for crucifixion. Now, the crucifixion account is rather brief, unlike the trial period. I think John spends more time with Pilate and Jesus than the crucifixion. And uh, we just read that they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. We don't know exactly where that is. There's a lot of theories, and if you go on a trip to the Holy Lands, they'll show you where it is. There are two possible sites that people agree are the most likely places, Um, and it could have looked like a skull. could have been named that because so many human skulls littered the landscape there. But verse 18 tells us he was crucified between two thieves, which is according to the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And John here hints at Pilate's sympathy in verses 19 and following. He says that Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, Aramaic being the language of the Jews, Latin being the language of the Romans, and Greek being the language of, you know, the whole world, kind of the universal language. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Which is yet another detail that makes Pilate one of the most enigmatic characters in the Bible. What in the world was his motive behind doing that. It seems that he had some sympathy for Jesus and believed in him, yeah. but not not, a, not enough to stay the order of crucifixion. He's at least trying to shame the Jews or to point out their 
the hypocrisy injustice. Yeah. yeah injustice uh, according to prophecy John records how the soldiers cast lots for his clothing at the bottom of the cross which is something that had been predicted in scripture according to Psalm 22 verse 18 by the way read Psalm 22 there are a lot of symbols fulfilled in the crucifixion account in that um, and one last gesture Jesus entrusts his mother to John's care and then he dies verse 28 says Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture I thirst and a jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth and when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit the um the Greek word translated it is finished is tetelestai, which means it's accomplished. He wasn't just talking about his life, but the debt that mankind owed God for sin and all the work that he intended to do when he came to earth, it had been done. Jesus defeated the devil and defeated the one who had the power of death. It was the day of preparation, which is the day before the high Sabbath at the close of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So the Jews asked Pilate to break the legs of the crucifixion victims to hasten their death. It to be done with the gruesome business before that great holy day. Um, this has to do with the way that crucifixion victims died. They usually died of asphyxia. They suffocated because in order to... Let me see if I get this right, Andrew. In order to exhale, they had to pull up on the nails and push up on the nails in their feet and then... In order to inhale, they had to hang. They had to do this strange dance of vertically pushing up and then hanging down in order to keep mm -hmm. the breathing process going. And so death occurred after many, many hours, in some cases over 30 hours hanging on the cross, when they finally tired of that movement or could no longer do it mm -hmm. and ceased breathing. So breaking the legs would prevent them from that action. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. And one of the soldiers drew a sword and pierced Jesus' side. And the result was a fountain of blood and water. And again, John saw this as an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. The fact that his bones were not broken um, fulfilled Exodus twelve forty six, where we read, about the Paschal Lamb, Numbers 9.12, and Zechariah 12, verse 10. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also looking for the kingdom of God, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a secret disciple up to this point, he went to Pilate and requested Pilate's, uh, Jesus' body. Uh, you know, there's an irony here with Joseph. While Jesus was alive, Joseph was afraid. After he died, he was no longer afraid. Jesus' disciples, however, were courageous when Jesus was alive, but now that he's dead, they're afraid. Right. Uh, Joseph finally gathers up his courage and goes and asks for the body of Jesus and buries him in his own tomb, a service that we often forget. I mean, let's not forget that the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Most crucifixion victims were never buried. 
and there wouldn't have been a body to rise from the tomb three days later because they were usually left out in the elements as a part of the humiliation, which was their punishment, eaten by, you know, carry-on birds and, you know, all kinds of horrible things happened to these bodies. But Joseph showed the body of Jesus respect. It was given a proper burial. And, uh, you know, he should be remembered for that act of grace. Along with Nicodemus, who is mentioned here as well, right? Yeah, right. He comes uh, up John's in verse 39. It's, Nicodemus, a guy who came by night for fear of the Jews. So that ends chapter 19 and the passion of Jesus. We didn't explain it before, but the word passion is used here in its Latin sense. Before modern times, the word passion meant much more than just positive passions. It had to do with suffering and anguish. So when we talk about the passion ministry talking about these things that we just read to you from the gospel accounts where Jesus suffered bearing the sins of mankind. Okay, the first thing that we want to look at in our think section of the podcast makes sense because it's the first part of the text that we looked at. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 18, we have this scene of Judas's betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And if you read through this and then you go look at Matthew or Mark or Luke, you're going to find some, some pretty big differences in the accounts and uh, it can make for some difficulty lining all of these up to sound like they're the same example or the same uh, instance. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all begin with Jesus talking to his disciples and then Judas and the crowd uh, approach and kind of interrupt Jesus talking. Uh, in Matthew and in Mark, Judas comes immediately to Jesus and says, Greetings, teacher. Uh, that's for Matthew. Mark, he says, Rabbi. And then he kisses Jesus, and they offer the explanation there, saying, you know, he told the crowd, the one I kiss is going to be the one you need to seize. Um, Then in Matthew, you have Jesus saying, friend, do what you came to do. And then in all of the accounts, Jesus is seized. Uh, Peter cuts off Malchus' ear. Jesus tells him to put the sword back in place. And then Jesus has this question to them, uh, he says, have you come against me as against a robber? And he goes on to say, day after day in the temple I taught. You didn't arrest me then, but now Luke adds at the end, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so there's a little bit of difference seen here in John 18. There's not the mention of uh, Judas kissing Jesus. And in fact, there's not any in Luke either. It says that Judas tried to kiss Jesus, but Jesus stopped him and said, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? 
so it's kind to of say a, that. I mean, does that leave out the possibility that Judas went ahead and kissed him after he said no, that? Though it does not. Okay. It just says he leaned in, and before he gets the chance, Jesus says, "Would you betray me with a kiss?" Well, he still could have kissed him. Just right. And uh, I looked. I came in here and grabbed your. McGarvey's fourfold gospel off yeah. your shelf to see you gotta, how you got to buy some books one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really need to. Um, but he he lines them up like this, uh, and you picture the scene here. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night. This is a garden that's going to be pretty lush. Uh, lots of it's known for its olive trees, right? It's called the Mount of Olives in Matthew. Right. Um, these olive trees—they're not really, really tall trees. Uh, but they're really interesting looking trees, and especially the old ones. The trunks of the trees are kind of gnarly looking, you know, kind of like twisted, I guess. Looks like a bunch of little roots or something all twisted together to make a huge yeah. tree. Um, it's And they're kind of hanging low. The leaves, the branches are, and they're thick. So it's dark already, and then you have this shadowy uh I guess the shadowy scene of all the trees and mm-hmm. the it's moon is out. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. at night. Here comes this crowd with uh, swords and torches. And and torches. Firelight. Firelight does strange things to appearances. Right. And so they come in with these things, expecting Jesus to be hiding. I'm sure, because I, I doubt that they were expecting to just walk in and grab him and leave, and there'd be no problems. Because probably usually with this Roman cohort, if they were if they were called upon by the Jews to go get somebody, they're they're chasing down a criminal, and that's not what's going to happen here. Uh, so let's, I think you can line them up like this. So you have this scene in the garden. Judas and the crowd approach. Jesus then asks them what you see in verse four. Jesus, knowing what would happen to him, came forward to them and said, "Whom do you seek?" They said, "Jesus of Nazareth." Jesus said, "I am He." Jews who betrayed them staying with them. Now, this next verse is really interesting to me. When yeah. Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Right. Why in the world did that happen? I think that is awesome. Uh, here's what Guy in Woods has to say about it. He says, they drew back and fell down just at the sheer surprise of Jesus' boldness and innocence. They were in fear and awe. This is his exact quote. The divine demeanor the simple majesty of his bearing, his bold exhibition of innocence filled their hearts with terror, and they instinctively shrank from him. The entire group swayed backward and then fell to the ground. So it's kind of the same thing that caused Pilate to ask his strangest question, where are you from? Right. So, he knew he was from Galilee. Mm-hmm. So he's meaning, are you... From heaven? Yeah. Or Olympia, like you said, Olympus or whatever, you know. Yeah. There was something, and and then, you know, this isn't John, this is Mark, but I talked about the centurion who said, truly this is the Son of God. Now, these men carrying swords and killing people all day long every day are not accustomed to being impressed by peasants, mm-hmm. which is what they thought they were going out to see, so... There was something about his demeanor, and he, he was had such a unique look about him that must have caused this reaction. Right, and I mean, and then he there, pushes it. You know, he's like, "Yeah, ask him a second time." 
Yeah, because, I mean, you got to imagine they are left speechless at that because they're coming, like, hunting for somebody. They're thinking they're going to, you know, Judas, they've got their mole on the inside that's led them to where he's going to be because they've been there many times before. So Judas brings them in. They find him. And then maybe they're expecting this big battle or a chase. And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, that's me. And for one reason or another, I think Guy and Woods has got a pretty good idea, but for one reason or another, they all just fall to the ground. They're overwhelmed. And then, so I can imagine being real quiet, and then Jesus says, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And I wonder about the difference in tone of their answer. Like the first time, when Jesus says, Whom do you seek? How would he said, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, or something, you know, like kind of yeah. angry, like, Who are you? Leave us alone. We got work to do. And then the second time, I wonder what their tone is when they say Jesus of Nazareth. You know, like, uh, I don't know. Maybe there's yeah. respect in the I, in their I, voice the second yeah. time around. Because they're, I mean, because they just fell to the ground at his answer. So I'm assuming that they now have some kind of uh, respect for Christ. And then, uh, so what you have, according to McGarvey, is that whole scene takes place. And then Judas steps forward. And says, Rabbi, uh, and then tries to kiss Jesus. And Jesus says, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then, obviously, Judas says yes in actually kissing him. And then Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. They seize Jesus. They ask uh, The apostles say, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And that's for Mark. Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus then heals Malchus, which you can read. I think it's in Luke. Is that right? Peter then um, heals Malchus's ear. Um, and then Jesus says, Put your sword back. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me? And then he gives them that accusation, really, saying day after day in the temple, saying you could have arrested me wide open in the middle of the day in public, but you choose now in the darkness in this garden so far away from everybody and illegally, now is the hour you choose, and this is the power of darkness. And then they take him, and then all the disciples flee. And I just think that whole scene yeah. is is incredible. Somebody ought to do a movie about that sometime. Yeah, they should. That'd probably make for some good, might some good film. Might sell some tickets. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a reconstruction, and, and you wouldn't expect all four gospel accounts to exist if they gave equal details. Right. Especially John. Seeing as how we've said time and time again, John wrote this, you know, decades after Matthew, mm-hmm. Mark, and Luke. Yeah. He was aware of them. He had read them and used them himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't. He wasn't setting out to just repeat what had already been said. But good job there. Yeah. That's... And I don't... Good reconstruction. I don't think we mentioned that the soldiers would have been... How many people do you think it was? I don't know. I don't I, know. Guy and what? Uh, there's this whole thing about the Roman cohort, and I know I, how I much keep, a cohort is. Yeah, I know. I keep dropping his name today, but that that's the commentary I read, so that's why I'm dropping his name. But uh, cohort, three hundred to six hundred soldiers. Now, I don't imagine they're sending three hundred soldiers to go try and get Jesus, who's known to be peaceful. And you know, I'm thinking seems overkill. I mean. I'm guessing they sent a handful it's the of middle people. of the night. I don't. I don't know. I yeah. I, I have know. no research on this to to 
Me neither. Combat that theory. I don't. But think I it was do know folks, that the co- the word cohort was used loosely at times to just talk about a band of soldiers. Yeah. Just like we would use terms like a whole army of people came out there. Yeah. You know, the entire United States Army. Yeah. No. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Here's the second thing I want to bring up. This will be the last thing I uh, bring up to think about in this section. Good. Is (laughs) is, uh, John and Peter at either Caiaphas or Annas' house, whichever one, or if it was both, they both lived in the same compound or whatever. I don't know. But when they get, they follow Jesus, Peter and John, and when they get to the quarters of the high priest... John knows the high priest. Somehow. We don't know since this is verse 15. Since that disciple, that's John. It seems like it's Annas is the one that he knows, right? I guess, because this is the one in context here. This is the, It's mentioned over the course of the conversation, the, the trial before Annas. We have, because John doesn't even record. John's the one writing this as well, and he doesn't even record the Caiaphas trial. We had to get that from Matthew. Right. Right? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so this is it's probably. mentioned in the middle of the Annas trial that he had some connections. Yeah, so somehow he knows him. Maybe because John was a Jew up to this point, I don't know, but uh doesn't really tell us how he knows him, so everything's speculation. But he does know him, and so John gets into the courtyard with Jesus. So it doesn't sound like Peter's with them. Sounds like John goes in. Not at first. Yeah, John goes in with Jesus. And then Peter stands outside the door. Maybe John catches a glimpse of him. And so John, this is in verse 16, John goes to speak to the servant girl who is watching the gate. And I think there's a reason that he's going to bring up the fact there's a servant girl watching the gate. But he goes and he talks to him, or talks to her, and she ends up letting Peter come in. So John probably said, hey, I know this guy. You can let him in. Or somehow convinces the servant girl to let Peter come in. Right. And as he's walking in, the servant girl says to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Mm-hmm. Now that word also leads me to believe that she knows John is a disciple of Jesus. Because she throws in that word also. And, and it seems like John's already said... You know, I'm interested. He's been in there. <laughs> Peter's trying to disguise himself. And what that little word seems to suggest to me is that John went in saying, this is my friend, this is my master, my rabbi. It's probably more the way that he put it. Yeah. Um, I'd like to be here with him. You know, you know me. I'm not going to cause mm-hmm. any trouble. And I've got a friend outside. He's also very close to him. Uh, can he come in? Sure. So John's been very open <laughs> with him when they come out. <laughs> Peter's, Peter's just, just lie. This is a typical Peter. I mean, when we get to the next one, there's something between John and Peter that is my favorite John and Peter interaction. But, um, you know, Peter's like, oh, I, not, I don't know him. I just, you know, kind of wanted to check in on this uh, scene here. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> that's it. And everybody knows, and... There are some other reasons why maybe they knew, uh, because one of the accounts mentions his dialect. That Galilean dialect was yeah. evidently pretty thick, pretty thick accent that people from Judea recognized and even looked down upon. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, 
you know, he wasn't fooling anybody. So you wonder right. why in the world, you know, what was going on in Peter's mind except mm-hmm. just absolute irrational fear. Right. I think it's uh, it's so different from what you read a few chapters ago of Peter saying, why can't I follow you? I'll, I'll die for you. Jesus says, will you die for me? And then we're over here, fast forward to right after Jesus has been arrested wrongfully in the middle of the night, all the way tucked away in the Garden of Gethsemane. He shows up at the courtyard of the high priest. John's already in there. John brings him in. You also are not one, so he's got to know too. Okay, she knows John is a disciple. Well, we forgot to mention that he cut off a guy's ear. Yeah, okay. That but, comes up in verse, uh, when we get over to verse 26, with the other guy that asked him, who recognized him from the garden. Yeah, right, right. The the friend of the guy who got yeah. his ear cut, which that may have rattled Peter. After he cut the ear off, he may have realized how much danger he was in. Yeah, because he could have been gotten for attempted murder. But I think it's interesting that he didn't cut ear. off the, uh, the, the chief priest's ear. Yeah. Or the soldier's ear. He found a servant, this yeah. poor little Malchus, who probably had no choice but to be there. <laughs> Wrong place. Because that guy's ear off, and you know Jesus, of course, takes care of him. But yeah, and then you know, there's the whole thing. Jesus puts a guy's ear back on, and they still haul him away for crucifixion. Yeah, there's another now, good thing to think about. I'm, I'm not saying that I would have been perfect in this situation, but I gotta believe. That if I'm one of those Roman soldiers, I would have had to say, that's it for me. Yeah. I'm out. Yeah. This you guy's know, putting people's ears back on. I've, I've had enough of this. And Peter, and you know, would that not have restored faith? You know, there's a, we, we all think we're strong and that if we had been in these situations, we would have done better. If we had lived during the age of the miraculous and seen miracles, we would be better. But, you know, I think human nature is such that we fear comes over us irrationally, and right. we don't know what we will do. And on top know. of that, look at who he's denying Christ to right here. Now, maybe over in verse, what I say, 26, maybe over there when he's in danger of getting got, caught for attempted murder, you deny Maybe I can give you a little more sympathy there. But here, it's a servant girl. And you know the culture at this time. Women are not held in that high of a regard. This is not even a woman. This is a servant girl. This is probably a young girl. Probably a foreigner that had been taken captive somewhere. Watching the gate. I mean, you know, he can't even confess his discipleship to her. Which would have been considered very cowardly. Which is bad. Yeah. It's just a it's lot more. It's as bad as what Judas did. It's as bad as what Jesus. Um, why the kiss? By the way, I don't know. Why not? That's him. Right there, the guy in that coat. Mm-hmm. You know, it really. You know, there's so many questions we can't answer. Because it's not like he's being sneaky by walking up and kissing him. Because he has this huge crowd of. Uh, you know, the soldiers behind him, along mm. with some of the high priests, I'm sure they would have recognized. It was unnecessary. Yeah, they could have... You know they recognized him because some of the Jewish officers were there. But to close this out, you know, I'll make this point. That puts more faith in me about whether this happened. Because the things we humans do really don't make sense. 
If everything lined up like a novel, like a mystery novel, where you know all the threads tie up nicely together, I'd question it. But because there are all these enigmatic moves, like you know Peter cutting a servant's ear off and then being afraid, and Judas choosing to betray Jesus so openly with a kiss, after Jesus had pointed out that he knew he was going to do it, mm-hmm. that. That's real human nature right there. And, uh, you know, that makes me believe this even more. Yeah. Just a few minutes left. We want to go back through, you know, one of the one of the passages passages of scripture that is heaviest with application, and make a few quick points. Um, we apologize for having so little time for the practical points of this. I just hope that maybe this is so familiar to you that that maybe the lessons are obvious to you. But um, you know, one thing I want to talk about is the paradox of man's sin and God's accomplishing his will through that sin. You have Judas here, and we raise the question, is this a matter of fate or choice? Because starting in chapter 13, things are going on with Judas that are very strange. The devil is inciting him, has entered his heart. Uh, Judas sometimes seems to be possessed. Other times... He seems to be making his own choices. And the answer to the question is both both things are happening at the same time. God's will is accomplishing things through Judas's sin, and Judas is making his own choices. Uh, this was fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 41.9, other passages. But also, Judas was responsible, and he paid a dear price for this. Acts 2.23 shows that paradox where Peter preaches, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you're guilty, but God did this according to his plan. It's both. Mm -hmm. It's both. Uh, Our salvation came by both things. Now, also, um, you know, we could talk a little bit in terms of, I think we've already done this in the think section, but Peter's denial is representative of our behavior many times. You know, it right. doesn't, there's no reason why he should have been afraid, and yet he behaved irrationally. He spoke boldly when he was around his friends, but when a, even a little servant girl came to him, he caved and denied Jesus Christ. Moving on. A third application is this idea of Jesus' kingdom not being of this world. You know, he has already established that kingdom. And the kingdom of Jesus is not so much a political territory or a future thing that we're looking forward to that one day will have a capital city of Jerusalem and last a thousand years on the face of the earth. 
But when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he's talking about God's reign in our hearts that brings deliverance. And that is a spiritual kingdom, as he told Pontius Pilate in John 18, verse 36. Mm-hmm. A fourth application is that, um, you know, Pilate asks this question, what have you done? And I think it's important for us sometimes to, to ask, what has Christ done for us? I know Pilate was talking about what kind of crime have you done. Yeah. But, you know, we need to ask, what has Christ done for us? He's done a lot. He gave up his heavenly estate to visit earth, dwell among men, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He taught us grace and truth, as John said in John 1, 17. He showed us the Father, as he told Philip in John 14, 9. He left a perfect example of, of love and of patience, mercy, a compassion. We see this, you know, in his demeanor in the garden that we talked about before. He died this torturous death on the cross, paying a ransom for our sins. And then finally, as we'll see in the next episode, he he raised he was raised from the dead and demonstrated that our hopes are secure whenever we place them in him, and serving as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ has done much for us and that's what these two chapters are really about. And that's not what Pilate meant. Yeah. But when he asks the question, it kind of gives us an opportunity to talk about what all this is about. Mm-hmm. Um, just anytime you want to say something, break in here. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm moving so quickly through these. I feel like I'm not yeah. giving you a chance to well, I, say anything. I know we don't have much time. I'm trying not to interject into there. But I, I want to squeeze this in real quick. There's so much irony in these two chapters. Almost everything in these two chapters is is ironic. And I think that applies to a lot of the things we do in our lives. If you compare us to the Pharisees and to the Jews, you look at, we already mentioned one of them, they arrest Jesus at night rather than in broad daylight when they've had the chance to do this all the time. Uh, Caiaphas, um, oh well, let me see, I can't read my own handwriting here. Uh, the Jews won't go into the governor's headquarters after they leave the house of Caiaphas because they want to stay clean. They want to stay ceremonially clean. They're crucifying the Son of God, but they won't go into Pilate's house because they want to stay clean. Uh, The high priest, even Annas, before that, uh, is trying to prod him for information that's secret. Again, Jesus, I've spoken openly. A guy slaps him and says, is that how you enter the high priest? Jesus says, what have I done? And he's not even high priest. That's right. Yeah. Jesus says, what have I done wrong? And then they just send him out because they know he hadn't done anything wrong. And it's against the law. He had no; there was no witnesses. Right. The Mosaic law required witnesses, two or three, famously, and right. trials were not to be held at night. Right. And especially not the day prior to the execution. Right. I know that much. On top of that, Barabbas gets released. We've already mentioned that he was the insurgent. He got released, even though that's what they were trying to falsely accuse Jesus of. They actually do yeah. release the political threat and yeah. leave Jesus there to die. Um, and then verse 15 is probably the worst thing of which chapter? they have said, of 19. The worst thing they've said so far. We have no king but Caesar. Yeah. How terrible is that statement? And I mean, it's true. And it, it, true. it takes you, you rewind the tape all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, mm-hmm. where God told Samuel what was really going on with his people. They yep. have not rejected you. They have rejected me. 
from yep. being king over them. And here it is again. This is what we're seeing right here. Yep. They've been true to their... You know, I was reading Jeremiah this morning. Can a leopard change his spots? Mm-hmm. And you see this people has been <laughs> stiff-necked from the beginning. They're not changing yeah. their spots. They're still rejecting the king. Yeah, and I'm, I'm bringing this back to an application for us. A couple more things, though. One, it happens on Passover, which is supposed to be a holy time, a holy feast. And then meanwhile, this is going on. Well, they make sure they get everybody's legs broken before. That is the next thing. Oh, The next thing is they're trying to get the dead body of the Son of God off the cross in time for the Passover so it's holy. Yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They they don't have to get him off the cross. Right. Just so he's dead. It's ridiculous of all the things, and it reminds me, I guess, a little bit of a really... What's one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not kill. Yeah. That's true. Of course, I don't believe that. You know, let's not get into capital punishment right now. But they thirty seconds left. In it's the just we look at this and say how ridiculous it is and how far they had fallen, and we might not be doing things to this degree, but you know, we really do things like this often. We'll say one thing. We'll say we believe this and we want to live this way. One moment. And then the next we'll go and we'll do the exact opposite. Much like Peter saying, I'll never leave you a little while later. Like you mentioned, denial. But the Jews, it's so much worse. And you look at Matthew 7, the beginning of that, you know, with the measure you judge, it will be judged back to you. Take the plank out of your own eye before you start trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And I think it just is a reminder, sobering reminder to me of, yeah, I can look and point the finger at these guys and say that what they did was horrible because it is. You know, it's one of the lowest acts humanity has ever committed. Certainly, if not the most, which I think it is. But just to see their pseudo commitment to God here, because mm-hmm. they're doing all this quote in the name of God, blasphemy. Yeah, it's not blasphemy. Tearing their clothes. It's blasphemy against them as the it's rulers envy. of their nation. Uh, they are envious. Yeah. Right. Uh, let's just sense. say this last applica- application, and I think it hangs in the air and will speak for itself. It is finished. Jesus' final yeah. words. It is finished. It is finished means Jesus, God through Jesus, has done all that can be done to save us. Now our part is to respond in faith to what has been done. Right. And in faith and obedience, that salvation can be ours. We appreciate you tuning in and listening to us. We covered a lot of material today, important material, and I know that we left a lot out. So next week, join us as we complete the book of John and introduce our next project, which we are very excited about. I hope that you'll join us then on the 66 Podcast.